Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, uh, welcome to the New Books Network podcast and in intellectual history. Uh, I'm your host, Benjamin Phillips, today joined uh, with Dr. Jared Seacord to discuss his uh, recent book, Christian Intellectuals in the Roman Empire, uh, with Penn State Press. Dr. Seacord, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much for having me. Happy to talk about the book today. Yeah. Um, so, Dr. Seacord, this book came out uh, a couple years ago, um, but obviously books uh, take a lot longer than that to write. So tell us a little bit, if you could, about uh, how this came to you and the, the process of bringing this book into being. Sure. Um, yeah, so the, the book does have a bit of a backstory in terms of uh, how much time did go into its genesis. Um, it goes back to when I was in graduate school um, quite a few years ago. I was a PhD student at the University of Michigan um, in ancient history, and um, I was interested in, in Christianity. I was interested in um, developments within Christianity, but really trying to frame them in the context of uh, what's going on in the Roman Empire at the same time. And I became interested in these Christian authors who were writing in Greek in the second and third centuries CE. And I was realizing as I read these authors um, more and more that I was seeing connections between them and non-Christian authors who were writing in Greek and sometimes in Latin too at the same time. Um, and so that was really sort of the, the longer term genesis of the book was really thinking about how much were these Christian intellectuals who were active in the Roman Empire, how much were they behaving and writing and uh, presenting themselves in the same way as non-Christian intellectuals at the same time. And the argument of the book, which I know we'll talk about more shortly, uh, is really just getting at the fact that I think that there is a lot more in common between Christian and non-Christian intellectuals in this time period in the Roman Empire. Thank you. That's excellent summary. So was this an adaptation of your dissertation or just a, a bee in your bonnet from... <laughs> it's it's a slight adaptation from the dissertation. Um, I'd like to say that uh, I didn't change a word from the dissertation, but that's not remotely even close to being true. Uh, this was um, something that the idea was there. My dissertation was actually about um, Greek intellectuals who lived in the city of Rome. Um, and I included uh, Christian authors. I included also um, Jewish authors. I included a lot of non-Christian and non-Jewish authors too. And then the book ended up just being the result of how do I focus some of this material a bit more down? How do I make something that might be maybe a little less broad? And how do I make something that might be a little more appealing for a publisher who might be looking for a bit more of a concentrated and focused argument with uh, a little less scope than than I'd had in mind uh, for the dissertation? Glad glad you're still able to to get this out there. <laughs> well, I, I am too, I'll admit. <laughs> Uh, speaking of publishers, this is uh, with the University of Pennsylvania Press, um, but a fairly new uh, series of theirs, the In- Inventing Christianity series. Um, could you could you tell us a little more about uh, what the series is and 
what it's trying to add to the field. Yeah, so I think that what the series is really going for in it, and the, the title of the series is Inventing Christianity. And the series is meant to be somewhat broad in terms of what it can include. Uh, so the editors of the series, who are uh, Stephanie Cobb and uh, David Eastman, uh, what they've had in mind for this is, is a combination of different things. They've wanted to see about how Christianity was really developing in this early period. Also, things about how people have perceived the development of Christianity in this early period then. So it can even be thinking a little bit about how, um, how this is language from their description, basically, how Christianity was invented, putting the word invented in stare quotation marks um, by other people. How is early Christianity kind of invented by people in later periods who are looking back on this early and really formative period for Christianity? And so what they're looking for with this series then is books about how this sort of takes place. And I suppose the way that, the, that my book is meant to be contributing to this is really getting at the idea of, to a certain extent, how early Christian authors are themselves inventing Christianity, but then also engaging with a really long history of how modern scholars and often not so modern scholars have really thought about the history of early Christianity and this idea that the history of early Christianity is very kind of separate and distinct from the history of the Roman Empire at the same time. So that's how I'd say my book is contributing to the the larger goals that this series has. All right, so you you mention regularly uh, particularly in the preface the the question of uh, you know the image we all have in our minds of the martyrs you show up at the trial and you know I I'm, I'm a Christian completely distinct um, from you, so help us understand a bit, a bit more of sort of what this context was, what the debates were um, in the second century, where we begin in this book, that the Christians are not just being held up against, but putting themselves into. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a big question. I'll just say so. I'll, I'll probably break this answer down into uh, into a couple different parts. I suppose that what. What I'm getting at, I mean, in, in part, so the, the the line that you mentioned, this this famous line that shows so that shows up so much in in early Christian literature, is a point where a Christian kind of reveals themselves to be a Christian. They say, "I am a Christian," and then that that settles everything. That dictates if the person is going to be martyred. That dictates if the person is going to be executed. That dictates all of these things. What I'm trying to do in the book is to try to look at cases where someone will maybe not quite say that they're a Christian. They'll get that across in various sorts of ways, but they will get that across while also saying, well, I'm a Christian, but I'm also a barbarian, or I'm a Christian, but I'm also a philosopher. Or sometimes even they won't quite come out and say, I'm a Christian, although you can tell still uh, for us reading it. But then they might say, I'm a barbarian, I'm a philosopher, and I'm not Greek, or I'm not Roman. And what I'm trying to do in the book is look at the different ways in which early Christian intellectuals use these different kind of statements of their identity, these different statements of who they are, And again, how that kind of complicates the pictures that we sometimes have of early Christianity, where our inclination or the historical inclination for many scholars has been to say, 
there are Christians, and then there are non-Christians, and that's it. And not really going further than that in terms of how, how we think about and how we approach early Christianity. I'm going to pause here now because I realize I, I'm, I'm, I'm not fully answering all of your question, but I'm also starting to answer some additional questions. So let's pause here. Great, great answer to an overly broad question. So thank you. Yeah. Um, have you found like, as you discuss this material with your colleagues and such, that this is a, a more widespread misperception even among scholarship, or is this a fairly, this is the right time to just bring this out? Um, people are starting to understand. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that um, I'm not the first to have said this in, in various different ways. I think that the, the, the point here in a lot of perspectives is that Christian identity, is, even in this early period, is complicated. And um, again, I'm definitely not the first uh, to, have, to have said that side of things. Um, we have complexities uh, when we think about the relationship between Christianity and Judaism, especially in this early period. We have complexities when we think about Christianity in, in, in relation to Greek identity, Roman identity, um, a whole range of different types of things there. And I think that the, the perception the perception has been interesting, or I suppose in some ways the response to the book has been interesting. Um, one of the reviewers of the book has said, yeah, Christians are more similar to non-Christians than has often been thought or has often been assumed. But then the response from that reviewer eventually is to say, now we need to figure out what exactly does make Christians different from non-Christians. So that's one response that has come across. Some other responses that have come across, some people have just said, yeah, of course, you know, they are. <laughs> they are um, more similar than, than has often been thought. Um, so there have been, there've been different kinds of nuances, I guess I'd say, in terms of the responses to the book in that sense. Although I feel that the response has, has mostly been been fairly positive, and I, I think most people are, are fairly convinced by a lot of the aspects of the portrait that I'm trying to offer. Mm -hmm. Fairly fairly well painted. Uh, it, it shows that you you know the field well. You're well acquainted with a staggering amount of sources as you read it. Um, but Speaking of complexity, like is the part of key to the argument of this book is that the Christians are the only complex ones, right? Uh, so there are swirling debates in Roman intellectual life about ways of knowing um, and who and where to get that. So t tell us a bit about this idea of uh, Eugenia uh, and such in Greek intellectual life. Um, Okay. So the, the, the key concept that, that um, that's really important for an early part of the book's argument is, is this concept, um, and, and we can probably pronounce it in a couple different ways depending on how, uh, how, how we want to pronounce Greek words, but um, I, I often end up saying it, uh, Eudenia, um, I realize different, different sorts of ways to pronounce it potentially, um, and that, that concept um, is really coming from it's an older Greek concept, and it can mean a few different things. It can just mean good birth. It can mean nobility. Um, it can mean a, a range of different things, some of which just have to do with someone saying that they are part of a noble family that has a really long history stretching back hundreds, if not thousands of years, basically. And what it's getting at is an emphasis that shows up in a lot of Greek intellectual culture in the Roman Empire where people will say, 
I'm Greek because I'm descended from this line of Greek people that goes back 500 years or a thousand years, this sort of thing. It's a way in which people were trying to define Greek identity uh, that was very heavily tied to ancestry and that was very heavily tied to at least claims of ancestry, let's put it that way, because sometimes people are saying, you know, I'm, I'm descended from Hercules, I'm descended from, you know, these, these Greek divine figures from, you know, millennia before that type of thing. And the concept is really important for the book for me in the sense that it is, um, it is a way in which Greeks would try to exclude other people and Greeks would try to say other people are not legitimate because they don't possess the same thing that I have too. And this was very significant then for Christian intellectuals in this period. It was also true for Jewish intellectuals in this period where a Greek would say, you're not legitimate. You're not someone I should even pay attention to or engage with because you're not part of the same tradition that I am. You're, you don't have this special access to it in the way that I do, which comes in part because of who my parents are and who their parents were and so on and so on and so on. So this is something that's really fundamental for the, the opening part of the book, especially, which is establishing this tradition where Greeks are kind of saying, here are ways in which we're different, here are ways in which we're better, and here are ways in which people who aren't Greek kind of don't fit in with us. They aren't the same as we are. And this is something that when early Christians were trying to make themselves a little better known, were trying to make themselves seem legitimate to other people, uh, this was something that they had to face. And then that's a significant argument for the book is how do early Christians kind of present themselves as... I'm legitimate. I'm someone you should pay attention to. I'm the representative of a serious and ancient tradition, even though there's kind of a newer element to us. But early Christians had all kinds of strategies and ways of trying to say, we're tapping into something that's much older than just something that happened 100 or 150 years ago in Judea, right? That type of thing. So, so given this very intensely proud and hard to break into Hellenic identity uh, in the industrial life. K kind of before we even get to the, the Christians there, how are they pulling this off in the Roman context too? What's the kind of, I guess this is what your dissertation was getting at more so, but um, how are they allowing Romans uh, in, into this intellectual stream? Yeah, that's complicated. And it's complicated in a few different ways because people had different ideas about that. And some of the ideas that some Greeks had about the Romans is that the Romans were pretty much Greek themselves. And there's an argument that I set out in the first chapter of the book, which is basically getting at this really weird and fascinating history of how Greek authors perceived Rome and perceived the Latin language. And one key point that comes out in the book is there were some Greek authors who thought that Latin was just a dialect of Greek. They thought that uh, this was a language that had kind of been transformed. Greeks had come to Italy, had come to the area of Rome, and their language had kind of evolved. It had changed a bit. 
and it had become Latin instead. And so some Greeks came up with very ingenious ways of trying to say, Romans are actually just Greeks, and this is all fine, and they're on our side, and they're part of the same tradition that that we're part of. Not every Greek said that by any means. <laughs> there were Greeks who definitely did say, Romans are barbarians, they're not Greek at all, what are you talking about? But there were other Greeks, though, who came up with ways of saying... Romans are pretty much Greek. Just look at them. Look at how civilized they are. Look at how much they appreciate Greek culture, things like this. So there is definitely this element of Greeks and Romans kind of coming together and agreeing on things and saying, yeah, you know, we've got a lot in common and let's contrast us to these other people in the world, which might be Christians, which might be Jews, which might be people they'd label barbarians. So that's sort of what's going on and what I'm trying to describe in the book. So you mentioned in line with that kind of before we, we get to the, before the Christians really get on the scenes, barbarians kind of having to code themselves and present themselves in a way that they could have access to these dialogues, but still be accepted as barbarian intellectuals. What, what would that be like? What were they expecting uh, from a smart barbarian? Yeah, so Greek and barbarian identities, again, one of these really complicated big topics. Um, what shows up sometimes, and, and I talk about this this a bit, and especially in the first chapter of the book, is barbarians coming up with ways of saying, well, how do you really figure out what the difference is between a Greek and a barbarian is? And where did Greek culture come from? Where did the Greek language come from? Where did the Greek alphabet even come from? Things like this. So what you'll see from so-called barbarian authors from the Roman period who are talking about Greek stuff, talking about Roman stuff, they'll say, well, Greek culture is all borrowed anyway from Egypt and from Babylon and from the Near East and from regions like this. And that's where the Greek alphabet came from and, and things of this sort. So you'll see this showing up in a whole range of uh, of of quote-unquote barbarian authors um, from this period. And I talked in a bit more detail about this Jewish author named Josephus. And Josephus is, is definitely pretty pretty well known in, the, in these sorts of areas, but Josephus has this, this argument. He's, he's a Jewish author who, um, you know, some people will present him as a bit of a, a, bit of a traitor, actually, to, to the Jewish people because um, he ended up on, on the Roman side when, when the Jewish rebellion was happening in the first century. CE. But Josephus, one of the works that he writes is basically saying, there are these Greeks who say that the Judaism is, is old and that we're not any good and that we're not, we're not a valuable tradition. And Josephus responds and he says, well, look at all the evidence um, that, that suggests that the Greek culture isn't actually that old and that Greek culture is kind of derivative of so-called barbarian culture in these areas. And so Josephus becomes a really significant figure because the way in which he responds to Greek culture, a lot of early Christians read Josephus and they... They find something uh, valuable. They find something that's kind of in common with their interests too. So this is something that, uh, that that then feeds into some of the later chapters of the book is there's this model from uh, Jewish authors when they're trying to say we're valuable and then Christians will tap into that and tie into that and will kind of borrow aspects of Judaism um, basically in terms of how they respond to Greeks who are saying, you're not legitimate, you're not ancient, you're not somebody we should even pay attention to. 
Right. Mm. Very good. Um, so that that brings us topically and chronologically to to the Christians. So uh, we ha- you have in this book picked out um, four uh, real apologists, right? Justin the Martyr, Tatian, Africanus, and Origen. Why why specifically these four? Yeah, good question. So the four authors that I focus on, I'm interested in them for, well, they have a few different things that that they have in common. Um, All of the authors at one point or another in their life spent time in the city of Rome. Um, Origin a little less so than the other three, but uh, all three of them do have some significant connections to the city of Rome um, in various ways. And so that that's a significant part of it. One other factor about all of them is that they wrote in, in the Greek language. Um, and that's something significant. We also know a fair bit about them. That is to say, we know when they wrote. For the most part, we know where they wrote. And we have a lot of basic details that we know about them in terms of their biography, the other people that they knew, again, the sort of context in which they lived and they wrote. And I picked them out because that's not actually true for a lot of other early Christian literature um, from that time period where we might know a little bit about somebody, but we don't know when they wrote. We don't know who actually wrote a work, that type of thing. So these authors are all very or at least relatively securely kind of dated and contextualized. And so that was a really important foundation for me, rather than having to make an argument even to say, I think this person actually wrote in the 150s instead of the 190s, or or I think that this work was actually written by somebody else than the author that, um, that people often have thought it's been written by. And again, that'll be a problem for a lot of early Christian literature that we uh, try examining. Yes. Yes. If there are any early modernists or maybe American historians listening to this podcast, take a moment and be thankful for your sources and how many you have and how well known they are. It's not, not every field is so blessed. Um, but yeah, kind of be, beginning with Justin, uh, Justin Martyr, very, very well known, even in non-specialist circles. Um, I mean, he, he comes out literally in dialogue uh, with Judaism. Uh, so how, how is he inventing Christianity uh, and trying to present himself in this time? Yeah, Justin is a really interesting character in part because we do have a lot of stuff that he wrote. We know about even more things that he wrote. I guess some of the basics on Justin. Justin lived in the middle of the second century. As his name implies, he was martyred, or that's the story and the tradition about him. And we have several of the things that he wrote. Um, you mentioned the the dialogue that he has. There's a famous work called the Dialogue with Trifo, um, who's a who's a Jew that uh, Justin is is speaking with in this work. So we have that work. The works that I focused on are two other things that Justin wrote that are typically called the first apology and the second apology. An apology, in this sense, really means a defense rather than saying he's sorry, so to speak. Right? Um, this is a defense of Christianity. And Justin's really significant because he's arguably, and I think actually, the first Christian to write works like this. And these are works that he addressed to the Roman emperors. Um, These are works that he also kind of addresses to the Roman Senate, right? They're, They're works that are theoretically addressed to an outside Roman audience in which Justin is trying to say, 
why are you treating Christians the way that you are? Why are Christians being persecuted and martyred? And in one of the works, the second apology, he even gives this fairly detailed story about something that had happened recently where some Christians had been persecuted in Rome and they'd been martyred. And he tells the story and he says, why are you doing this to us? We are legitimate. We are, we're not bad people. We're not doing anything wrong, basically. And Justin sets out this really interesting argument in the work where he says, we're philosophers. I'm a philosopher. And this is something that's really fundamental to how Justin presents himself. And so in this sense, if we're getting to the question of how Justin is inventing Christianity, Justin is offering a really specific presentation of Christianity as being a philosophy. Justin also offers this, this um, I guess I'll just call it a very creative argument where he basically says, there are a lot of people in the past, other philosophers, who actually, they're pretty similar to us. And it's not that Christians are similar to the philosophers, it's that the philosophers are similar to Christians. So Justin offers this long list of Greek philosophers from earlier periods, including someone like Socrates, right? Plato's teacher. And he says, Socrates is basically Christian. They just didn't know about Christianity yet, but Socrates is basically Christian in terms of what he does. And then there's this, the famous story about Socrates' life, right? Socrates is persecuted. He is, um, you know, he ends up, he ends up, well, not quite being put to death, but he ends up dying basically in response to, um, let's call it the persecution persecution that he is um, kind of the target of. And so it's very fascinating to see that Justin kind of redeploys the example of this famous philosopher who's being targeted and persecuted um, by his city. And Justin basically says, that's us. That's what's happening to us right now. And Socrates is just like us, actually. So this is what Justin ends up doing. And this is what I end up talking about then in, in the book is really thinking about how Justin is borrowing things, taking things from philosophical life in the Roman Empire. And he's basically saying, I'm just like these other philosophers, but actually I'm even a little bit better than they are, is, is basically what he has to say. Yes, they had the part of the Logos, but we have it, you know. Yes. Made flesh. Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, one very interesting point you brought up in here is that as Justin is presenting as a philosopher, he's quite specifically presenting as a cynic. Um, so how would that have, wh- why would he have chosen that school of philosophy to kind of... I mean, it- I don't know that he's necessarily presenting as a cynic. He's presenting himself in similar ways, but I, I think that the, the philosophical school that he presents himself as being most similar to in, in general is Platonism, right? Is the, the philosophy so associated with Plato and Socrates and the later traditions uh, continuing on from that. The way that he ends up behaving, though, at times, and the way I think that people would have seen him would have would have seemed more like um, someone who's part of the cynic school of philosophy, and the cynics were people who were were well known for well a range of different things, but they were well known for being maybe a little more rude, a little more willing to um, 
to say things that other people might not want to say. The cynics were people who you know, might want to say the emperor has no clothes, so to speak, right? Um, they might be the ones who would be willing to come out and say things that others would not be willing to do. And I think that that Justin ends up navigating this difficult sort of pathway of trying to say, I'm a philosopher, but I'm different from the other philosophers, but I've also got some stuff in common with them. So I think in some ways he's really trying to kind of um, sort of cycle through these different sorts of possibilities and skirt through them all in such a way where he can say, I'm different, but still I'm recognizably a philosopher. Um, and in fact, I'm even better than, than these, other, these other philosophers representing these other schools. After Justin, uh, we have Titian. Uh, or Titian, who is Justin's student. Uh, admittedly, someone I had never heard of before, uh, but he has a bit of a historiographical dust-up even quite quite soon after his own time period. Um, you, you mentioned in here that Titian eventually kind of becomes a heretic. Um, so how does that happen in relation to uh, Justin and then kind of the presentation of Christianity in that time? Sure. So Tatian is a really complicated and interesting figure. Um, Tatian comes out and uh, he, he is a pupil of, of Justin Martyr. And um, Tatian does a few different things. Um, one of the things that he's maybe most known for is he kind of edits and combines together um, the different gospels <laughs> and he puts them into, into a similar, into a, a sort of unifying work that, that kind of brings together, you know, there are four gospels. Why can't we just have one that kind of brings together all of it and is like the more authoritative version. So Tatian choosing to do that did kind of make him suspect to other people who were saying, let's actually have four gospels still, right? That, that style of thing. So that's one of the things that Tatian did. Um, the reverse Q source kind of. Yeah, something like that. But um, Tatian's an interesting guy because um, he's a barbarian and he is very uh, frank about saying, I'm a barbarian. You Greeks that I'm writing to, you all think that I'm a barbarian. But um, Tatian is one of these people who uses this uh, this idea of barbarian is actually better. Barbarian is older. Barbarian is pre-Greek and the inspiration for Greek stuff. And so the work of his that I talked about, which um, it's sometimes translated with the title to the Greeks, I translate it as against the Greeks because there's some ambiguity about what that word can mean. And this is work directed at the Greeks explaining how they're inferior. They're not as ancient as they think they are, how they are corrupt and they're... Um, they're full of vice, basically, among, among many other things that Tatian has to say in this work. And then Tatian becomes this very interesting and complicated figure within early Christianity because people knew, reading his work, they knew that he was linked with Justin. And everyone thought that Justin was was orthodox. They thought that Justin was a, a, a very legitimate and important figure in Christianity and someone that a lot of later people took inspiration from. Tatian, though, you read his work and then you read things that were written about him by other Christians in roughly the same time period, they say Tatian used to be orthodox. He was fine for a while, but then after his teacher Justin died or was executed, was martyred, then Tatian got a little too big. And Tatian thought, I know things better than other people do. 
adaptation apparently left Rome and he established his own kind of offshoot of Christianity using this kind of unified gospel work that he had kind of edited together, basically. And people would say things about Tatian. They'd say he... Well, they said things, among, among other things about Tatian, they said he's a vegetarian. They said that um, he and his people, um, they didn't even like marriage. They didn't want people to have sex, basically. And so Tatian then ended up um, being branded as a heretic in all of these different types of ways. And that becomes really significant in terms of how people have, have looked at Tatian since then, where people want to look at him from this lens of, is he actually a heretic? Is he not? How heretical actually is he? And what I end up doing in the book, and this is getting a little complicated, the Tatian chapter is long and complicated, and I'll acknowledge that. But the chapter on Tatian is really just trying to get at, there's a lot of stuff going on in terms of how people are viewing him as a heretic um, or not. And some of what's going on there is a lot of other Christians aren't quite so proud of this idea of being a barbarian. And one of the arguments that I end up making in the chapter about Tatian is that some of the people who regard Tatian as, as a heretic also seem to be regarding him as a barbarian and as something that's not fully in keeping with how they, they view themselves as Christians, which is to say some other Christian authors view themselves as a lot more Greek in that sense. And one of the suggestions I'm making is they're bothered by this this presentation that Tatian gives of Greek culture and all of the, the, the nasty things that he says about Greeks, basically. That would be bothersome. Uh, do you think he's trying to bid, bid himself into uh, the tradition and the dialogue by making these challenges? Is he trying to, like, like is, he, is he having an I'm a Christian moment or is he trying to tear down the wall so he can get in. Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing about his work against the Greeks is that um, he never quite comes out and says that he's Christian. Um, this is one of those works where we read it and we say, okay, this is Christian, we can tell. But he never quite actually comes out and says that he's Christian. Um, it's, 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 it's one of these works, again, it's Christian, but you can read it and maybe not think of it in that sense, actually. Um, so it, it's one where, you know, to, to me, to a certain extent, it's it's directed to Greeks against them. And Tatian is always saying, you know, why do you guys, you men of Greece, why do you say this? Why do you do this? Why do you think this way? And he, he asked, he has all of these questions and all of these attacks against them. And one of the suggestions I make, which I realize is, is meant to be a little more provocative, is um, some of those men of Greece that he's addressing in the work, I think he's also addressing other Christians um, in the work in part, and is calling them men of Greece. He is uh, recognizing that they are, in, in some respects, different from, from how he is. And it, I think that that's an important component in the um, So, and sorry if there's a glitch in the jump in the conversation. We had some slight technical difficulties, but we're back now. Um, speaking of difficulties in between uh, Tatian and these next few apologists we're speaking of, there's a dynasty change. And so the Severans come to power in the early third century, and with new rulers comes new rules. Uh, so how, how do the Severans and their their own origins kind of change the way these discussions are taking place? Sure. 
So the real change that takes place, we, we do go through a, let's call it a, a change in dynasties even might be a good way of describing it in the Roman Empire at that time, where we go from people that I would describe as being a little more Greek and Roman, basically, right? A little more from the central part of the Mediterranean, so to speak. And then when the Severans come into play, the Severans have connections to Northern Africa. The Severans by marriage also have connections to the Near East. And what happens when they end up in power is they start depending a little bit more on people from those regions of the empire. And what that means is the empire starts becoming a little bit less Greek, a little bit less Roman in the sense that they have these connections to people who are from Africa. They have these connections to people who are from the Near East. And they kind of open up the doors for them to have have a little more access to power, to have a little more influence in the empire. And so that's the larger context that I sort of sketch out for the final chapter of the book, which is then saying, let's look at how stuff changes in the third century. Let's look at how different people start getting into the conversation and start having a little bit more influence and being noticed a little bit more. That's the context that's there for when Christians start getting paid attention to a little bit more in the early part of the third century then. Mm -hmm. So how are they, how is the spotlight changing on Christians who are, who are Africanus in origin and Sure. So um, Africanus and Origen are, <laughs> we could talk a lot about both of them, especially yes. Origen, I realize this, but Africanus and Origen. So so Africanus, or to, to give him his full name, Julius Africanus, or potentially even Sextus Julius Africanus. Uh, Julius Africanus is one of the weirder figures in early Christianity. I'll be very honest with about that one. Well, that's um, he's saying something is Origen's up. Yes. He's well, weird. Uh, Africanus, though, um, he's from the place that we would now call um, Jerusalem. But um, in Africanus's time, um, Jerusalem had been kind of refounded. Um, and it was known to the Romans in that period as a place called Ilia Capitolina. And that's where Africanus says he's from. He's from what's basically a Roman military colony that's been established there, again, on this, this city that we would call Jerusalem now. And Africanus is someone, he, he travels around the empire. He's very learned. He has read a lot. He's been to a lot of places and he's interested in weird things. He's interested, oddly enough, in magic. He's interested in how you can use botanical substances to do all sorts of strange things. And Africanus writes this work, which is the, the main work that I focus on um, in, in the book, um, this work, and it's, it's, uh, it's a miscellany. It's, it's kind of like a little random grab bag of, of uh, stuff that he's interested in and that he knows about. And he dedicates it to, uh, to one of these Severan emperors, basically then. And um, this work, incidentally, it is the least Christian work from antiquity um, that survives from a Christian, that is to say. Um, it has no, no signs at all that it's actually written by a Christian. 
Um, so Africanus is a strange guy because he also wrote these other works that we have, um, and he and Origen, um, they knew each other, and they, they exchanged letters uh, to and from each other. And so Africanus is very much a Christian. He's very much interested in the sorts of things that Christians are interested in in antiquity, but then he also writes this work that is that gives no signs at all. And in fact, people look at it and say, this can't have been written by a Christian. What's it doing talking about magic, talking about all these other sorts of things that Christians shouldn't be interested in? Right. Does it work? Does it catch the attention? Um, I I think it potentially did, although to a certain extent, what we have when we have Africanus is um, we have him talking about himself a bit. Um, So apparently um, he designed a new library for uh, one of the seven seven emperors in Rome. So he was potentially an architect. Um, he, He seems to have been something of a librarian. He was a lot of different things. And so I think he's someone who people paid a little bit more attention to. And we know from later on that uh, people were very interested in at least parts of this strange work that he wrote, um, in part because of all the advice it offers about um, military-related topics and generalship and, you know, how do we defeat these uh, barbarians from the East? That's one of the the topics that Julius Africanus talks about in this work. They would catch the attention. That makes sense. <laughs> and then uh, I realized the next part of your question was whose origin? And uh, we don't have three hours or more, so I'll, I'll try to be very brief on, on origin, except to say that origin is, is again, one of these um, very significant but also quite controversial Christian figures. Um, he wrote an awful lot, not a lot of it actually survives. Origen wrote in Greek, and a lot of it doesn't survive in Greek. Some of it survives translated into Latin. But sometimes we wonder, is this actually what he really wrote, or is someone changing what he wrote? And I think in some ways, I'm, I'm oversimplifying, but Origen, his view on Christianity was criticized in antiquity for maybe being a little too smart, for maybe being a little too non-Christian, for maybe being a little too colored by philosophy, among other things. So Origen got in trouble for a lot of different stuff. He was a controversial figure in his lifetime, and then even more so after he died, there are a range of stories told about him. There's a famous story that when he was young, he castrated himself, actually, which he took it to be as a, a sort of natural thing that, that, that he thought was, was justified and, and even kind of argued for in the, in the Christian scriptures, um, basically suggesting that, you know, if... If you're bothered by sexual temptations, maybe this might be an avenue to consider doing. Um, It's not clear that Origen actually did this, but there were stories told by people who didn't like him very much that he did this type of thing. So again, Origen, uh, we could keep going for quite a while more about him, except to say that he's, uh, again, a controversial, very learned figure, um, but someone else who, you know, there's, there's a whole sort of story about him and the controversies around him. Right, right. Uh, and he, he kind of ends up becoming in many ways the, the kind of the, the punchline almost of this this book uh, in that he, he's so easily seen as the, the finally here we have the Christian scholar kind of I think Werner Jaeger kind of presents him this way as like the, the synthesis of Greek paideia and Christian learning. Um, but how, how now that we've kind of recast this context, uh, can we see origin a little differently? 
Yeah, so Origin, I think the, the way that he acts and the way that he responds to Roman power and Greek learning in the third century in the time when he lived, Origen is interesting because he knows exactly how a scholar should behave. He knows what a philosopher would do if a philosopher is being basically summoned to speak to the emperor, this type of thing. And um, this, this basically happens to Origen, right? Um, people know that there's this, this really smart, interesting guy and the emperors are interested in talking to him, basically. And the way that we see Origen responding to this is he responds in the same way that a Greek philosopher would, basically. He says, why should I be impressed by this? Um, and then it's, it's also clear we have some hints in his works that um, he didn't let, let this summons to the emperor kind of um, interrupt his work, basically, right? I'm busy. I've got stuff. That, <laughs> I've got stuff going on here, and so Origen, in that sense, I think, um, you know, we can we can still view him as potentially being a little bit different. And there's stuff going on certainly for Origen that's complicated, but Origen, I think we can still approach him and still regard him as as very much like any other philosopher, basically, <laughs> um, active in the third century. Um, he's not as distinct as people have tended to want to make uh, Christian authors and Christian, uh, let's even just call them philosophers in this time period. Right. Mm. Very good. Well, do you think he would be pleased to hear that? or maybe I'm not off. sure that he would, um, but I also think that it, it's sometimes hard for people in the context of the time when they're living to think about what is it that makes them Christian? What is it that makes that makes other people not Christian? And obviously there were some basic things that they might be able to point out, but I think it is always important to consider that um, even if we're talking about a tradition that, that lasts for you know thousands of years as it has at this point, there are differences now from how it was in those earlier times. And I, I realize that it's important for people to emphasize continuities, to emphasize similarities sometimes, and to say that, you know, we are working in the same tradition that the early Christians started out with. But when we approach that early tradition, there are some features in it that are coming from a Greek and a Roman context. There are features in it that are coming from what the Roman Empire was like. And I think it is important to recognize that there are these different elements in how Christians behaved, how they wrote, how they presented themselves. And not everything can be explained simply by saying they are a Christian. And that does not suffice to explain and to, to, to understand early Christian authors and intellectuals. Excellent. I, wow. What a wonderful uh, summary and conclusion and uh, note to end on. Don't want to take too much of more of your time, but thanks again uh, for coming and helping us understand this work of yours and um, the time that it's writing on better. Uh, are you working on anything else at the moment or? Well, uh, I am still working on some things. I, I have another paper that I'm wrapping up right now that will talk a little bit more about Julia, uh, Julius Africanus, and we'll talk a little bit more about his interest in military subjects, and then relating that to military literature from the Roman Empire. 
Um, so there are always some things that are ongoing, and I'm, I'm digging into thinking a little bit about some other early Christian intellectuals that I don't talk as much about in this, in this book, too. So there are more things that are in the works for me still, then. Excellent. We look forward to seeing those as they come out, and thank you for your contribution to the field in this work. Okay. Well, thank you very much. It was a pleasure speaking with you.